Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12? I want to begin reading this morning in verse uh, 22. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. There's probably enough interesting material in there to cause you to ask your own questions. And to cause you to think about uh, the way your faith interacts with the world around you. But the context in which we encounter Jesus is not only much more religious than ours, it's much more spiritual. There was a sense of spiritual reality that um, we don't really encounter very often. In fact, we find ourselves relatively unfamiliar with spiritual reality in the unseen world. It's not that we think that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. It's more, really, that we don't even think about it. We're oblivious. We're like that drunk fan who makes his way onto the field and hears the cheering and thinks that it's all uh, for him, unaware that he's about to be body slammed by a 250-pound linebacker. That is how it is when we're unaware of the dangers of the spiritual realm around us. We're wandering around (laughs) unwittingly being set up to be body slammed. To be unaware of of the spiritual realm is dangerous. To be dismissive of the authority and power of Jesus is even more dangerous. I think too often 
We treat Jesus as though He came to earth on a mission to secure individual salvation for people like you and people like me. Yet He was here for so much more. Jesus came to earth to plant the flag of another kingdom. He planted the flag of another kingdom in the midst of a kingdom that was already here, the kingdom of darkness. And so spiritual reality is such that Jesus has an enemy. An enemy that was active when He was here on earth and an enemy that's active now. And sometimes that enemy of Jesus takes prisoners. And that's what we see in this text. That the enemy of Jesus took a prisoner and they brought him to Jesus to see what he would do with them. And the result of that, I'm just going to get to the bottom line. The bottom line is this. You and I, we're going to have to decide whether or not we believe that Jesus was here asserting his power and authority by the Holy Spirit or not when he cast out these demons. We're going to look at what Jesus does with this uh, hopeless, broken person. And we're going to see Jesus dominate Satan. But we're going to have to decide, are we going to argue against that? Are we going to ignore it? What are we going to do with it? So look back at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? Now imagine that if you think about it, you'll recognize this as a particularly hard case. This person was deaf and blind. Now imagine if I was deaf and blind and you were to come get my attention. What would you do? If you were more than that to cast out some kind of demon or evil from within me, what would you say that I would respond to? What would you do that I would see? I don't know. And I think that's some of the point. Is that this particularly hard case was an additional sign to everyone who saw that Jesus was un unlike anybody they'd ever met before. That Jesus was, in fact, who He said He was. Because He healed this man with no apparent effort whatsoever. I mean, seriously, did, did you notice how dramatic it was when Jesus healed this guy? He was blind and mute and was brought to him. Eh, and he healed him. Eh, no big deal. I mean, no big deal. I don't have any idea how I would start with that. And Jesus just, no problem. 
And so we have this blind and deaf man who now sees and hears. And that appears to us miraculous, and we should be sort of just struck by how simple it was for Jesus. But that's not all that's happening in this healing. Because if you remember last week, uh, we read uh, from Isaiah 42. If you just look up a few verses, you'll see the you'll see the part that we really like, I'm just going to say, right? That Jesus, that Jesus will be the servant of the Lord who will treat the bruised reed gently, and he won't break it. He'll have compassion on the smoldering wick, and he won't snuff it out. And we like that. We're like reading that and saying, yes, Jesus. You go, yeah, I'm, I like that. But you know what? Not everyone liked it. Not everyone read it that same way. And I want to suggest to you that Isaiah chapter 42 is still on Matthew's mind. Now, Isaiah chapter 42, if you recall, started out by saying the servant of the Lord, and it started talking then you know, about this servant, and Matthew said that servant is Jesus. And that, we read the first four verses there. He quoted the first four verses last week. But verse 6 of Isaiah 42 says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Then hear this. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." And so one of the missions of this servant was to open the eyes of the blind. And we see that, and I think that's part of what is going on here, is that Matthew is connecting the servant of the Lord who treats this bruised reed so gently with the one who opens the eyes of the blind. But that's not all that's here. If you were to look Further in Isaiah 42, uh, you would notice that there is sort of this shift from the servant, the one servant, to the people of Israel who function uh, collectively as the servant of God in the world, who should be representing God to the world, and they are so captured by idols that they are um, enslaved. And in fact, this is then what he says about the people of Israel. They are turned back and utterly put to shame. This is verse 17 of Isaiah 42. Who trust in carved idols, who say to the metal images, you are our gods. Then this is what I want you to see. He says to Israel, hear you deaf, 
And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messengers whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated ones? Or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things but doesn't observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Because of their idolatry and their commitment to these other gods, they forsake the God of Israel. They are blind and deaf. And now we come back to Matthew chapter 12 when they bring a blind and deaf man to uh, Jesus. And the religious leaders look and say, oh, he's blind and deaf. But as the things unfold here, we realize he was healed. He could see and he could hear. It's those religious leaders that actually are blind and deaf because they still refuse the one who could make them whole. And so you would imagine then that if, <laughs> if they understand what's going on with Isaiah 42 and they realize that Jesus is pointing the finger at them saying, you're the blind one, you're the deaf one, you're the one who has no sense. Well, yeah, I wouldn't like anyone telling me I have no sense either. But then it gets worse, doesn't it? And it gets worse because in verse 23, all the people see this and they have some sense. And they say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah, the long-awaited king? And so they're on edge now, considering that Jesus doing what he just did, opening the eyes of the blind, probably was that servant from Isaiah 42. So, so Matthew, as he, as he refers us back there, is working both angles, both to encourage and to condemn. And so what is an encouragement to the people, so that they say, could this be the son of David, is an accusation against the leaders who themselves are still blind and deaf. Well, that leads us then into an argument about how this could happen. Because the blind and deaf Pharisees don't want to deal with it. In verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, <laughs> It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So their angle on this is it's all a trick. Jesus is simply doing a trick here and he's using, he's using demonic power to cast out demons. He in fact either is or is in league with the, the king of the demons in order to cast out the demons. Now, I want you to know that they're not really that irrational. 
Because everybody, when they confront Jesus, is going to have to do something about Jesus. Either he is who he said he was, this is the son of David, this is the servant of Isaiah, this is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Or you're going to have somehow skirt around his spiritual authority and power. Somehow you're going to have to get around that. You're going to have to explain it away another way, or you're going to have to submit to him as your king. And they knew they had to do one of the two things, and they didn't want to submit to him. So they worked to get around it. And so despite the evidence to the contrary, they said, he casts out demons by the prince of the demons. Now, for, this, is, this is like denying what is right in front of you. Like people have done for a long, long time, right? It's possible that you could deny that the earth, revolve, that the earth revolves around the sun. You could consider the earth the center of the universe and the sun and all the stars going around the earth. Even though for four or five hundred years now, the case has been really clear after Copernicus and Galileo that the sun is the center and the earth goes around it. But you could deny that and explain it away a different way. You would be denying what is true, the facts that are right in front of you for some alternate explanation. I mean, you've probably heard of those who are flat earthers, right? People who believe the earth is flat, even though for literally thousands of years, people have demonstrated that the earth is spherical. I mean, you've seen pictures from space, but if you were to say, nope, I'm not going to believe it. I insist the world is flat. Contrary to all the evidence, then you would be like these Pharisees here. You would have to work as hard at that as they were having to work to dismiss Jesus. They had clear evidence that Jesus had effortlessly cast out this demon, that Jesus had restored this man's sight, this man's hearing, Yet they denied Jesus' authority and his power. And so they said, Yeah, hey, cast him out by the prince of the demons. Then in verse 25 it says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself can stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Now you probably recognize those verses as much from Abraham Lincoln's quotations of them as you do from the fact that they actually came from Jesus himself that it makes so much sense that um, several hundred years later, the president could quote them and say, we have to be united because a kingdom divided against itself will surely fall. 
And sure enough, that's what you see. Satan is very much in business and he is not in the business of self-destructing. This is Jesus suggesting that it's illogical what you're, what you're telling me, that I'm casting out demons by the prince of the demons. It's like saying that you're coming and going at the same time. And you can't let the door hit you on the way out and stay in the room at the same time. You can't cast them out and still be in control at the same time. And so Jesus said, no, no, that's not what it is. It's not a function of Satan casting out Satan. That's ridiculous. And then he goes to verse 27, and he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, so Jesus just throws in another argument against this ridiculous explanation. And that is that there had been other Jews who were uh, casting out demons. I mean, that was a thing. And how, do you, how are they doing it? If I'm doing it by the prince of the demons, how are they doing it? And by the way, they're on your team. They're your people. And if your people do it this way, and I do it the same as them, more or less, why are they not on Satan's team? That's basically what he's telling them. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, we do it this way, but he does it by the prince of the demons. And so then we get to the punchline, and the punchline is here in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a problem. This is the issue. If what they saw is true, you have a new king. The kingdom of God is here. What did Jesus mean by this exorcism? What did He intend to signal by the healing this man? He wants you to know that He is planting the flag of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. He is inaugurating a new creation in the midst of the old broken creation. He is declaring Himself King in the face of Satan who would like Himself to be the King. If by the Spirit of God He casts out demons, then you must come to grips with the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And so the question here is raised. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to end up submitting to Jesus or are you going to end up resisting Jesus? That's what we see happening here. But Jesus isn't finished. He's not finished uh, pushing back. Verse 29, he says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You got to like this. If you're 
I, I, maybe you don't have to like it. Maybe you don't like wrestling or boxing or fighting or MMA or anything. You, you don't have to like this. But Jesus deals with the strong man. The message here is there is a strong man. He's stronger than you. He's stronger than me. We can't break in his house and do anything about it. But Jesus is stronger still. He enters the house. He beats the strong man up. He ties him up. He sticks a sock in his mouth. He throws him in the closet. And then he takes whatever he wants. It's not a close contest. We're not on pins and needles wondering who's going to win here. Jesus totally, (laughs) he totally dominates him. This is a smackdown of the first order. And you need to know, I mentioned earlier, we were like that drunken fan who wanders into the stadium and we think it's about us and we don't know what's going on and we're about to get body slammed. There is a danger in the spiritual realm if we play with it, if we pretend it's not real, if we go into it on our own. But one of the reasons that Jesus came was to make clear to us, to make clear to the world, to make clear to Satan himself that one stronger than the strong man is here. That Satan is not the authority anymore. That there is a new sheriff in town. This is the uniform message of the New Testament. Now, I I, I think even before I read you a couple other scriptures, I mean, we're coming on the Halloween season, right? You've probably even seen Halloween movies advertised already where people are screaming and there's ghosts and there's scary things. You probably should recognize that you have reason to be fearful of the unseen realm if you are apart from Jesus. If you are not there together with the stronger man, you should fear the strong man. But the universal message of the New Testament is that Jesus has vanquished him. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What did Jesus do when he died on the cross? He destroyed the devil who has the power of death. And he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Your freedom comes because you are united with Jesus. To be independent of Jesus is to be in grave danger. It says the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or 
on the cross. Jesus completely disarmed the strong man. He defanged the lion who roars about seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus came that he might exercise his power and authority over the unseen realm. And so the strong man is bound and his house plundered. And this poor man who was blind and mute is free. And so we see this happen. The Pharisees saw it happen. The crowd saw it happen. What do you do then? That's, that's where we get to now. Verse 30 comes to decision time. What are you going to do with Jesus? Look, look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And so very clearly, Jesus lets us know there is no room on the fence for you when it comes to Jesus. You must get on one side or the other. You must either gather or scatter before Him or be against Him. There is no middle ground. Now this gathering and scattering, I think, is a... Uh, just a picture. That does, it sounds like it comes from plants where you're, seed, you're scattering seed or you're harvesting seed. I don't think it's so much that as it is from the, the world of domesticated animals like sheep or cattle. I mean, my, my father-in-law used to have uh, cattle and for my vacation we'd go brand ca calves and it was my job to be in the pen there opening and closing the gate or moving the cattle. And if I was in the wrong place, it's really the only time my father-in-law would really get upset with me. But he clearly considered me against him if I was in the wrong place, scattering the calves to the, to a, they went in the wrong pen or they went down the wrong chute. I would be against him. And that's the same picture here, that if you're not there getting the sheep in the pen, then you're in the way and you're scattering there is no middle ground. And Jesus wants us to recognize what a grave mistake these Pharisees are making by being so dismissive of the power and authority of Jesus. And so he gives us a definition of that. Beyond merely resisting or opposing Jesus, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So blasphemy, blasphemy sounds like a religious word. It simply means to speak ill of or speak badly of um, and so they are speaking badly or insulting the Holy Spirit by whom Jesus brings the kingdom to attribute the power of the Holy Spirit to Satan is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit to look to Satan for spiritual power that belongs only to God is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit 
to call the good that Jesus does by the Holy Spirit evil is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which then leads you to actively resist Jesus, who is your only way of salvation. One commentator said said it this way, it is not that God refuses to forgive, it is that the person who sees good as evil and evil as good is quite unable to repent and thus to come humbly to God for forgiveness. And there is no way to forgiveness other than the path of repentance and faith in Jesus. And so to call evil good and good evil to say that by the power of Satan, Jesus uh, casts out the demons is to speak uh, evil of the Holy Spirit by whom he does that. And that puts you in a place where you will not be forgiven. And so let me say it this way, because this does sound pretty serious and pretty frightening. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that he's talking about here is not something that people do accidentally. You who are coming to a worship gathering here to worship Jesus and to find uh, increasing reasons to love Him, are not about to accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It is one thing to be a victim of the evil one, like this blind and deaf person was. But it is quite another thing to be a co-conspirator with Satan, like the Pharisees were. And that is the occasion for this stiff warning. And so with the warning and with the, the, the reason for us to figure out what is happening here with Jesus. Is he doing magic? Is he doing something by the power of the prince of the demons? Or is he planting the flag of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. And really, you're going to have to come to grips with which one you think he's going to do. Are you going to be with him or against him? Gather or scatter? And so this morning, like really every morning, we have to say, are we going to trust Jesus or are we going to not? Is he going to be who he says he is? Or are we going to try and explain him away some other way? This morning, in addition, we have another way to think about Jesus. We're going to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper, as we call it sometimes. And normally when we do that, very appropriately, we remember Jesus dying on a cross to forgive our sins. Or perhaps we think of communion along with the communion of the saints and we look around the room or we, we uh, review this past week and we think of 
the people that we have offended or our sins against God and we confess those sins. And that's a very appropriate thing to do when it comes time to remember the death of Jesus. But today I want to add yet another layer on top of both of those and suggest that today when we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we focus on his victory over this, the forces of darkness. That when he said, this is my broken body, this is my shed blood, he did it with a view to ultimate victory over sin and death and the devil. In fact, he spoke of this victory when he shared that final meal with his friends. As Matthew tells us in chapter 26, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That part of this celebration is a look forward to when this kingdom that Jesus inaugurated when He planted that flag on this day, when He died on the cross and rose again, the part of that kingdom that came when Jesus came will one day find its full fulfillment. And the meal that we'll share together with Him that day will be a meal like no other. The glory that we will enjoy will be glory that will make all of the pain and darkness of this world disappear. And so in addition to your own forgiveness, in addition to your own reconciling with other people, clearing your own conscience, I want you to worship Jesus as the King of kings and the one who brought victory over the darkness because of the cross and resurrection as we celebrate his death. Remember his death today. In fact, this, the, the way that the New Testament talks about this is just every bit as glorious as anything. When it talks about us being delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, that's what we're talking about here this morning. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again for you.